0: Hi everyone, welcome to Dr. Mommy Speaks Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rahat Sayed. I'm a physician, parenting coach, and a mom of two. I believe that parenting isn't something that should be learned on the job. Raising good humans is one of the most important tasks of our lives. And just like any other task, you need to learn how to do it right. Here at Dr. Mommy Speaks, we have expert interviews practical advices and my personal parenting experience as a Dr. Mommy on child health, positive parenting techniques and dealing with challenging behaviours in children. Hi everyone and welcome back to Dr. Mommy Speaks Parenting Podcast. I'm your host Dr. Rahat Sayed. Today's episode is for parents who are struggling with their teenagers and young adolescents suffering from various mental health issues and how you can fix it well in time. We will be addressing topics like teen social anxiety, common eating disorders like bulimia, anorexia nervosa, mental health issues like depression and a lot more. So stay tuned. For giving us some valuable insights on all these topics we have with us Tripti Chaudhary Wed, who is a psychologist specializing in emotional disorders of children, adolescents, and young adults. She has been practicing for the last 10 years and has extensive experience in trauma-based psychotherapy called EMDR. She holds workshops and lectures on different aspects of raising children in today's age. She's also an international affiliate member with the American Psychological Association. Hi, Tripti, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you and looking forward to learning a lot from you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Seth. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much.
0: So let's dive right in and start with what is teen social anxiety disorder? Teens are concerned about any and everything, their body, their weight, acne, boyfriends. They worry about people's, especially their peers' opinion about them. So at what point does this behavior become worrisome and when do we call this social anxiety?
1: Okay, so we need to learn something about adolescence, right? Adolescence is a time when there is tremendous change happening in the life of a child going to become an adult, right? There are lots of hormonal changes that, you know, take place during puberty for a child. Right. And, uh, they go through this whole concept where, you know, the peer group now becomes way more important than, you know, just parents and, you know, family and all of that. Right. So they now move on to this fear of how do I look? How do I feel? How are others perceiving me? That kind of like becomes very important. When you look at the cognitive development of, uh, you know, adolescence, there comes a, there comes a period where, you know, uh, Something called public, you know, audience works for them, which means that they feel that if they enter the room, everybody is just looking at them and not at anybody else. Right. Now, that is, so now imagine that that is the thought that's going on in the head. Okay. Which is already causing a lot of, you know, uh, anxiety entering into a social situation. Coupled with that, there are a lot of bodily changes that also start happening so it creates like a whole confusion plus at this time children are develop children adolescents are developing their own you know identity they are trying to break away from what you know was thought of as good for them but they want to experiment more they want to you know uh, you know push their boundaries they want to do different things therefore the, you know the kind of music they listen to that changes everything changes Now, as a result of this, social situations become kind of difficult, especially for kids who may be exposed to some kind of, you know, difficulty in interaction, difficulty in coping with a social situation. For kids of that background, social anxiety steps in into a bigger way and that leads to actually causing a disorder. Now, it reaches a point of disorder when one actually starts avoiding social situations. They don't want to, you know, sort of go for these, you know, social situations. They don't want to meet their friends. You know, um, it starts, you know, they start breaking away from, you know, social situations. Uh, There's a lot of fear. There's intense fear about going into a social situation, right, which is very which is disproportionate to the event. Now that is very important. Anything diagnosable needs to be looked at in mental health from the purview of how intense, how, what is the intensity of that uh, occurrence? Because everyone may feel, every adolescent may feel, you know, slightly, uh, you know, anxious about entering a social situation. But when it becomes to a point that they start having other symptoms of avoiding it for instance you know to give you uh you know uh, a reference point you know from my own work there was a you know an adolescent I was working with and the the adolescent started having uh, you know somatic symptoms whenever uh, he or she would you know want to would be exposed to, like, a social situation. So they constantly become more withdrawn. You know, they, uh, now, nowadays, you know, the virtual friendship scenario has become so strong that, you know, it's easier to withdraw into that own shell and not want to, you know, sort of go out, not want to, you know, uh, interact, not want to address those things. So uh, these are some of the, you know, this is when it sort of becomes clinically significant when, you know, there can be school refusal. You know, which is one of the main reasons why actually people start, you know, referring them to referring or figuring that there's a concern of, you know, social anxiety when, you know, they stop going to school, they stop uh, going to classes, they stop going, wanting to go here, wanting to go there, you know, so when all of that starts happening and there is um, a visibly, you know, they'll start having uh, symptoms of, you know, sweating in the palms, fidgetiness, skirmish, you know, they'll start having heart racing, palpitations, you know, when they are, uh, when they're approaching a social situation, then is when we start treating it as a social anxiety disorder. It needs to continue for a significant time for it to get diagnosed. Just, you know, anxiety into one situation is probably not good enough to get it diagnosed. But yes, if it's recurring, it's happening in every situation. It's happening a lot in comparison to what the situation might be. Those are some of the indicators that we need to look at it from a professional perspective.
0: Okay, so is there any time frame that uh, an adolescent has had uh, symptoms of social anxiety that is being withdrawn and other symptoms that you said and they have been persistent for a a particular period of time beyond which we can call it a disorder?
1: About six months. Six months, okay. Yes. That is it needs to persist, uh, you know. Yes. Because again, you know, like mild anxiety is, uh, you know, is faced by a lot of people. But does it, uh, you know, uh, does it qualify as a, you know, criteria? Does it Does it qualify as a diagnosis for a disorder? Maybe not.
0: Right, so it needs to be looked into by a professional who has experience in this field and also the time frame has to be, the person has to be getting those symptoms for at least six months. Yes. Okay, so moving on, uh, how to handle teens at puberty? I am yet to reach that stage because I've got toddlers, (laughs) but I fear it already because I know how I was back in the day. Uh, So my plan up till now is to just let them be. Can you tell us some concrete parenting tips for handling teens and what they actually expect from parents at that age?
1: Right. Okay. So what they expect from parents is understanding and a little distance. Maybe a lot more distance is what they're looking at. (laughs) Like keeping in, you know, with the light of the thing, social distancing is what I think most teens would want. But well, um, parents... Being parents are not going to give that. So the important thing for parents to understand Dr. Rahat at this time is that they have to undergo a change in the way they handle their kids, right? They are not children anymore. They are teens, which means again, referring back to, you know, what I said in my first point is that they want a lot more independence. They want to experiment with things. They want to, you know, have their own opinions, Now, if as parents, we keep telling them that, okay, you're not old enough to decide that, you're not old enough to decide that, it's not going to work. If we dictate rules at this age, not going to work. What is required is you discuss the rules, discuss the limits with the child and come to an understanding together. If you think you're going to have it your way or highway, kind of a scenario, not going to work. If the adolescent thinks that that's the way it's going to work, not going to work. So, the best part is that you come together on certain things. Hear them out. You know, the problem that happens with parents, and in my experience, I always notice this, is they don't hear their child enough. They don't listen to what the logic behind saying this particular thing could be. The, the, you know, the thing of saying, no, just because I said so, you got to do that works at a younger age. It does not work with adolescents. It may have worked when we were kids. When we were adolescents, (laughs) it may have worked. But today as adolescent is extremely aware. They have they can give you reasons for doing a particular thing and not doing a particular thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you listen to everything that the teen has to say. But the moment you you make the rules jointly, it gives them accountability and responsibility for keeping up to that rule or that guideline in the house. Now, to understand them in the purview of the fact that we are having so many hormonal changes they may be going through. They have, you know, so much stress from the social situation, the peers becoming important. When we look at it from that perspective, and with that lens, I think parents will understand that it is a pretty difficult time, especially in today's day and age, where, you know, there are, at the drop of a hat, there are body image issues, there are, you know, there are lots of triggers and stressors for children academic pressure is up to its peak. You know, socially children are put under pressure to be a certain way, right? Then coupled with, you know, uh, you know, parents having this, this you know, so, sort of tussle between the children. So at the puberty age, it is important for parents to understand that children are going through a difficult phase in terms of hormonal changes. You can't do anything about it. Simple strategies, give them clean eating, healthy eating, very important. Yes, indulge them in junk as well, but that balance needs to be there, right? Involve them in some kind of, you know, a physical activity, very important. Have some guidelines about screen usage as a family, not rules that just work for the adolescent, but not for me. But they need to be derived by, at a family level, Okay, no phones on the dinner table. This is applicable even for the parents and for the children. If one work call comes, you can't pick up and leave the table and go. That doesn't work. Right? Hear them out. Keep channels of communication open. Because like I said, if children are experimenting, sorry, if adolescents are experimenting, give them the space to come and talk about it. Let them make their mistakes. It's okay. You need to look at the bigger goal of letting them learn through their mistakes. Yes, of course, you know, as parents, you are concerned that they shouldn't get into something really, really, really scary. But yes, but when we give them that scope and that space to be, then children will probably be more uh, open and they will come and tell you what's going on. But if you instruct rules, it is not going to work. Have some, uh, you know, uh, let's say, like I said, rules create accountability by involving them in the decision-making process, in the rule-creating process. Because then they'll feel included. They'll feel like, okay, well, this is a part of me. This is they've they've considered my voice as well. So that becomes very important. Have some basic uh, things about sleep time because the the concern that's coming up a lot with adolescents today is that you know their sleep is all warped. You know. So it might be a good idea to have some kind of a sleep schedule, some kind of, you know, enforcing uh, those kind of, uh, you know, things. That might be a good idea, you know, to have in the household. Um, And encouraging communication, watching things with children instead of judging them. Another fact is very important to be able to deal with them during this period is to not judge them. To understand that, okay, this is their choice, okay, let them make their decisions. Highlight what consequences could be, but don't tell them that this is wrong, don't do it, because then they're going to go ahead and do it. (laughs) But when you tell them that, um, you know, these are the consequences, I'll be with you with the consequences but i need you to know what the consequences are showing unconditional support is very important at the time of adolescence because remember adolescence is also a time with where the foundation of your you know adult life is getting set so it is very important to help them decide between right and wrong so you tell them that, okay, I understand what decision you're going to take is not a good one. But I support you in the fact that you know all the consequences that are going to happen. I'll be with you no matter what. Giving that confidence to adolescence is very, very, very important. They know that, you know, somewhere, therefore the home becomes the compass then. It's like the compass that points north. They'll know that even if I mess up, you know, my parents will, they'll be there. They'll be there for me. Not in a way that, you know, you give them the, now again, this can, I don't want this to tip in the way that, you know, you feel that uh, whatever mistake I make, you know, I'll be, uh, you know, Shouldered by my parents, not that. But what I mean to say is that they'll be there through the consequences that you have to undergo. That that learning is something that adolescents is a great time to impart, a great, great, great time to impart. So if we look at the child from this perspective, the puberty years will be lesser friction and much better, you know, for them to grow. You know, I always tell parents that, you know, when they say, you know, she's making this mistake again and again and again and again and not learning and not listening and all of that. I always tell them that, you know, when uh, when, uh, children learn to walk, when babies learn to walk and they fall, they fall many times. Have you counted the number of times they fell? Did you place cotton balls under their knees when they fell? Did you, you know, say that, no, I'm going to sponge the whole house because no, my child is learning how to walk. They cannot fall and they cannot hurt themselves. No, we don't say that because as parents, we know that the bigger goal is that of learning how to walk. Adolescence is similar. Let them make their mistakes. But the only difference is here, you will tell them what their learning to walk could be. Right? So look at it from that perspective and you will not judge your child for their mistakes. They'll start having confidence in who they are, and that will be important.
0: That was that was amazing. So basically, supporting your adolescent actually means considering them like an adult, like someone Absolutely. who has the ability to make his own decisions and face the consequences after that. That was such a nice yes. perspective. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about um, certain common eating disorders, starting with bulimia. Many teens, especially girls, who are conscious of their weight, exhibit this behavior. So what are its signs, and how do we correct this behavior?
1: Okay. So uh, one of the most important things of, uh, you know, uh, any kind of an eating disorder is obviously the, uh, you know, there is... uh, a lot of imbalance in the kind of food you're eating so there's also i'll come to the causes a bit later but um uh, to start with uh bulimia nervosa is uh you know there are recurrent episodes of binge eating in this followed by uh you know a purging behavior or like you know a, a way in which that you know they will take it out means that they will either use laxatives they will vomit uh, so the, the important part in bulimia nervosa is that there is an inappropriate compensatory behavior, which means they will eat a lot, and then they you know probably uh, vomit it out deliberately, or they will use excess laxatives to kind of like you know take it out. Uh, they might use diuretics to you know uh, let go of the you know the food. In a bulimia nervosa, that uh, they also eat a lot of food as saying that they have lack of control of the quantity of food that they eat, right? So that is an important uh, characteristic of uh, bulimia nervosa. Um, again, it is all driven by what, what I may think or what the person may think, which is basically a self-evaluation of what the weight should be or what the body shape needs to be uh, you know, so that is what the uh, that is what uh, defines a bulimia nervosa, right? Um, it needs to happen at least one week, uh, once a, once a week, for a period of three months for an accurate diagnosis of binge eating disorder. Okay, so it needs to happen for uh, at least once a week for a period of three months to be diagnosed as a uh, bulimia nervosa. So the important part in bulimia is that there is a purging behavior. There is an inappropriate compensatory behavior in which they take out all the food that they have eaten, but they do eat in that, right? So uh, if an, if any person is going through, uh, now the severity could be from like, let's say uh, one episode of this, uh, you know, binge eating followed by a, uh, you know. Uh, purging behavior it could be like maybe once a week or it could you know in severe cases also go up to 14 to 15 times you know which would be very very severe Uh, in which case you know they're not uh, they're not really ingesting any food they're just eating and then you know taking it out so uh, this is what is bulimia nervosa
0: So you put it in such good words that a person's bulimia nervosa is a person's self-evaluation of his own weight and what his body image should be. That's what forces them to exhibit such a behavior. Yes. So talking of uh, bulimia nervosa, let's also have some information on anorexia nervosa. What are its causes and how do we approach it again in a teen?
1: Now, anorexia, the difference, I'm just going to take two seconds to tell, to you know, highlight what anorexia nervosa is. In anorexia nervosa, they severely restrict the intake of food. So, the calories that you take in per day will go down drastically to be able to maintain that ideal body weight. And that ideal body weight is never reached because with people who have anorexia nervosa, they keep pushing their body uh, weight lower and lower. Right? They have this intense fear of becoming fat or of you know like gaining weight uh, even though they may have very low weight they will still feel intense fear of gaining weight. There may be a lot of exercising excessive exercising that people with anorexia nervosa might uh, you know start indulging in. So they basically don't eat a, don't eat much okay? they and they over exercise so there's a term called over exercising which basically makes them lose whatever fat that they may have accumulated which leads to an extremely low uh, you know uh, body weight in which case there can be actually nutritional deficiencies there can be physiological concerns of you know extremities being cold all the time feeling a lot of fatigue feeling tired uh, you know, all of those concerns. It can lead to cognitive deficits in terms of, you know, uh, they are unable to focus at school, focus at work, focus on, you know, doing things. Concentration goes, obviously, because, you know, you don't have a replenishing system in your body. So it is uh, it basically affects a lot of aspects of your life, right? Um, so this is what anorexia nervosa is. Now, coming to the causes of anorexia nervosa again, A lot of it is, you know, uh, determined by uh, societal things, you know, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from how one may view their body. A lot of it also comes from, you know, uh, again, if I was to give you the trauma perspective to it, like, you know, just someone mentioning at school or something that, you know, you gained weight, you know, that may be a trigger enough. For somebody with an uh, you know, with uh, you know, uh, who may just completely give up eating and you know want to go to uh, losing extreme amount of weight, remember that you know the the payoff also happens by that when they start initially losing weight through an anorexia nervosa, people start complimenting right that oh you know you've lost weight, and that I think in my experience I don't know if there's research to say this or not, but um, you know I think that sort of Replows the thought, ki, okay. I need to continue with this behavior of not eating because you know I was getting the compliments that I wanted to get when I was not, uh, you know, when I was not this body weight, so you know it just sort of spirals out of control. And then you know, one doesn't know when, uh, you know, it reaches a point where there is severe, you know, uh, low body weight, uh, and all of that. Also, the level of you know, the we. I think we all come from a society where the concept of thinness uh, is somehow very, very persistent in different ways, right? So uh, when one starts ascribing to, you know, that concept and they feel that, you know, they're fulfilling that, you know, concept, then, you know, it, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, I think it reinforces that. So more like... uh... Being thin.
0: More like conforming to the societal norms because it's so easy to get into it. Just open the window and look outside on the billboards. All you see is fair and thin people. Why wouldn't one get uh, attracted to being something like that?
1: Absolutely. You know, a, a few years ago, I think this was a few years ago, there was this really odd challenge. I don't know if it exists anymore. I think it originated, uh, I'm not sure where it originated, but uh, you know, it, it, it was the A4 size sheet uh you know uh yeah, i can't i don't know where it which country yeah, did, is slipping out of my mind i
0: did come across but, you, know, it Instagram. Be,
1: you did you did yeah. see so you know if we have if if these are the standards of conformity that you know adolescents are looking up to then it's a cause of concern. Because remember, going back to my discussion about puberty, about adolescence, they're so concerned about how others are viewing them at this time. That, you know, it's very easy to get stuck in that, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, you know, that whole cycle and vicious cycle of, you know, uh, trying to conform that, you know, a thinness gives me a sense of confidence and, you know, all of those concepts. So those somehow get reinforced and, um you know, can lead to debilitating effects in some people who actually get diagnosed with anorexia nervosa.
0: And also, like you said, that receiving compliments from their peers, it acts like a huge validation that, yes, my efforts are giving, they are paying off. Such a yeah. small trigger, and then they're going to fall into the spiral time and again.
1: Exactly. And when that, you know, when that negative, thought about the you know about your or a negative self image becomes a part of you it just slowly slowly sleeps in and you know it just becomes who you are you know people who may have and this is characteristics of people you know who have uh, anorexia is that how much ever weight they may lose they still may not be able to reach the ideal weight that ideal weight scenario never really happens for them in their mind because In their mind, because they constantly keep thinking that I can go lower than this. I can go lower than this. I can go lower than this.
0: But what I wonder is that um, a patient of anorexia nervosa and a patient of bulimia, uh, it's much more easier for the parents to recognize a patient of nervosa compared to one who's bulimic. Because that person is just in the washroom vomiting or using laxatives. Nobody outside the room will know that this person is suffering. But a nervosa person, it's so easy to recognize them.
1: Right, that is true. You know, the identification, physiological identification of obviously anorexia nervosa is far greater than a bulimia. Because bulimia is, therefore, you know, in most cases bulimia is actually, in my opinion, bulimia is actually the scarier of the two. Physiologically, obviously anorexia nervosa can lead you to a hospitalization situation and, you know, a more detrimental health situation. But bulimia is very sly you could be eating just fine with everybody and then going and, you know, purging it out and till, you know, people would actually recognize it, you know, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be out there. So yeah, well, both are very, very scary though, uh, you know, because uh, having worked with children of both, um, it takes a whole team to, you know, work through a uh, you know, a person with, uh, with an eating disorder, you need, uh, so, you know, coming on to how we can work, uh, you know, anorexia nervosa, or even bulimia, is that you need to have like a nutritionist on board, you need to have a psychiatrist on board, because there can be comorbidities of, you know, depression or anxiety along with it, there can be in severe cases of, you know, uh, uh, anorexia, the uh, suicidal ideation is very common, it, it does happen. So it can lead to, you know, it can become very, very scary. So you need like a psychiatrist on board to, uh, you know, uh, see if there are any comorbidities, which means there are any additional concerns of depression or anxiety, you know, that are coming up, which usually is the case. Uh, In my experience, mostly it's never just an isolated eating disorder. There will be, you know, comorbidities with like a depression or an anxiety, uh, you know, about the food or whatever, right, which becomes more global. So, um, So you need an entire team to be able to work through a a person with an eating disorder uh, to be able to tell them what the rights and the wrongs about food are to, you know, sort of slowly start start a person with, let's say, anorexia with, you know, graded meals, uh, what to eat, how to eat, you know, to give them that kind of guidance. The psychologist will obviously work on the thoughts about food. They will work on your relationship with the food. They will work on your relationship to yourself because they will work on all your body image issues, making you feel comfortable in your own skin, making you feel comfortable working on any negative automatic thoughts that, you know, you may have, for instance, you know, uh, they may have the thought of I'm fat. Nothing, no evidence to say that they may be fat, but then they still believe that they are fat or, you know. Uh, working slowly and steadily, getting them back into their peer groups, working through all of that. So you know they need a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a nutritionist. You know they would need uh, they would need parents to be non-judgmental, just saying you know eat, eat, eat does not work. So you know I think parents play an extremely important role in you know helping uh, adolescent with. Uh, uh, you know, working through uh, the eating disorder because they would need, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of support from the family. Then, uh, for some obviously, there is a medical management also that is required because you know, in a case of uh, you know anorexia nervosa, nutritional levels may really drop. So, you know, medical monitoring needs to be done by like a, by, you know, a general physician. Or, right. You know, Vitamin
0: deficiencies, B B12, right. They will totally lead to some neurological deficiencies or tingling, numbnesses. Yes. That would be, need to be addressed. All of that. Uh, So I've also uh, seen patients uh, of anorexia and bulimia uh, taking almost six months of time to get recovered only because of the psychological trauma that they suffer because of this illness.
1: Yes. Treatment procedures can be very long. Like I said that, you know, with uh, anorexia, nervosa and with any eating disorder for that matter, one needs to also keep in mind that there is a a very high uh, possibility of a relapse also. So, you know, they may go back to their eating ways. So it's a, it's like I said, it's a, you know, it's, it's treatment with a lot of people for a very long time to be able to work through their own, uh, you know, thoughts about themselves, to work on their eating patterns, to constantly keep doing that, avoid, you know, uh, fat shaming, avoiding, you know, the, uh, the body talks. You know, dressing for oneself—it's—it's it's a holistic uh, development, uh, you know, that we are looking at. So the treatment plan is uh, usually longer uh, for a person with an eating disorder. That was
0: insightful. Let's move on to another mental health illness, which is very common in teens: uh, depression. And yes. going to this lockdown, its uh, occurrences are only increasing. So how can we know that a child is depressed and how can we
1: handle our teens better during these tough times? Right. So again, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, when the child is or when the adolescent is showing, you know, irritability in mood, anger outbursts, feelings of sadness, which don't go away uh, and which may happen without any reason, a lot of frustration, uh, They don't want to do, uh, you know, what they usually found enjoyable. Like there is a, you know, uh, a lack of interest in uh, pleasurable activities. Uh, They have a very low self-image. Their self-esteem is very low. Uh, A lot of negative talk. Uh, You know, very sensitive to rejection. Very sensitive to feelings of, you know... uh, any kind of, you know, uh, blame, they they self blame a lot. There's a lot of self criticism that may happen for, you know, people who are undergoing a depression. Um, Again, school uh, gets affected, you're not able to concentrate, not able to perform as a result of it that makes you feel further low, you know, that I can't do this, I'm unable to do this. So these are some of the, you know, uh, symptoms of uh, depression. In addition, uh, there could be thoughts of death, dying, suicide, wanting to leave the home, go away, feeling like, you know, I'm not good enough, constantly complaining of tiredness, fatigue. The sleep cycle gets altered. The appetite gets altered. Either one starts eating a lot or one starts, you know, uh, Lessening the, you know, quantity that they would eat, um, you know, lesser time that they would spend with family or they would look, appear sad. But also one thing that, that's known is that, you know, with, uh, you know, with uh, older people, the sadness is more apparent with, with adolescents and teenagers and you know, younger children, it may manifest as more anger outbursts, temper tantrums, as you may call it, you know, stuff like that, uh, uh, self-harming behavior. You know, you'll see like cut marks on the hands, uh, you know, on the top of their, suddenly they start wearing full sleeves uh, t-shirts to hide their cut marks. Or, you know, they have, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, deliberate self-harm or suicidal self-injury is a very uh, solid indicator of, uh, you know, depressive uh, concerns in the child. Making plans of actually attempting a suicide would also, you uh, point to the fact that a child may be going through uh, depression um, the other the, there are you know depression manifests in three ways one is hopelessness helplessness and worthlessness hopelessness that nothing can happen i'm like this is doomed i'm i'm doomed nothing can this no one can help me now i've reached the stage when one can help me and worthlessness is more to do with self i'm not good enough i can't do anything you know i'm not a good good kid i'm not a good friend i'm not a good this i'm not a good boyfriend i'm not a good girlfriend all of that so the category uh, you know like if we were to categorize the thoughts and feelings it would go under these three categories right when a child starts talking about a lot of negative stuff is when we need to really look into Sometimes just talking to the, it may not necessarily be a depressive disorder. Uh, it may just be something that has happened, in which case, you know, talking to the child, helping the child cope through it may work.
0: More like a but phase.
1: If it, it, no, I wouldn't use the f- word phase. It, it's just, it, it's definitely preceded by a trigger, but it doesn't necessarily manifest as a depressive disorder, Right the feelings may, you know, if, if we intervene before, it may not develop into a full-blown disorder. So the right? child is actually... Uh, and children. So
0: the child is actually you know, the getting child symptoms can of...
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes, you are right. They can get these symptoms, but it doesn't necessarily go into a whole full-blown disorder in the first go, right? So, uh, again intensity is important the severity of the symptoms is important just feeling sad for a few days does not uh, qualify as a depression right for that to happen there needs to be a lot more uh, you know parameters and if you feel that you know even after your advent even after you know trying to help your kids it's not working out then you need to go go in for professional help like let's say you know you you know that your your ad- adolescent has you know started Using uh, sorry, you know, is uh, into smoking or is into alcohol or is into, you know, uh, using drugs. Then you know, obviously that calls for you know uh, intervention at the earliest. If you if you know that the child is cutting, those so those are the uh, emergency flag signs where you need to really, uh, you know, sort of uh, intervene and get uh, professional help. So these are some of the ways in which we can like sort of identify. Uh, you know, uh, whether a child is depressed or not.
0: So there's like a huge stigma associated with mental illnesses and visiting psychologists in our society, Indian society. But then what parents yes. actually need to understand is how important its repercussions are going to be if you do not
1: seek professional help. That is true. You know, I always say this, that if if tackled with the earlier stages, uh, you know, uh, children can go back into their lives faster and sooner you know instead of uh, the symptoms prolonging so long it also uh you know the reason it manifests or it goes on to so long is also because you know they don't know where to go for help parents sometimes don't understand therefore i think you know it it's very it's very important for you know parents to have a clue about what these concerns can be so that they can identify and if they feel that, you know, there is this kind of a concern, they can sort of, you know, take it to the, or take it, they they can really take the person to the requisite, uh, you know, mental health professional to be able to help the kids, uh, you know, have a way of letting themselves express themselves, you know, in a safer environment. Because, you know, when it reaches a point of, you know, when the child is cutting on a daily basis, or, you know, the child is being rushed to the ER every, uh, you know, uh, every few days, that can get very, very scary. When, you know, kids are having severe panic attacks, or, you know, they're not being able to cope with school pressure, the academic pressure, then, you know, it can, it it can really, you know, it can have a very, very difficult side to it. And, you know, from my own personal experience, having worked with, you know, children who have reached that end of the spectrum, I always feel that I wish they would have come in a few months sooner. I wish they would have, you know, gotten their traumas addressed or I wish they would have had a way to, you know, sort of work through their issues before. But well, you know, I think the awareness is coming out slowly and steadily. But uh, we only hope that it comes out a lot more right so actually
0: parents just usually tend to brush it off calling it the hormonal phase or it's just puberty but then only one has prior knowledge of what calls what are the red flag signs that's when they can go in for professional help true absolutely you're right okay so moving on um your expertise lies in emdr therapy uh this is what yes. intrigued me the most about your credentials and could you explain to us what it is and how it can benefit the patients of emotional distress secondary to mental trauma?
1: Right? Okay, so EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. What so big words, but what it basically talks about is that when we experience a traumatic situation, now uh, now I'll come to the definition of a traumatic situation, right? A traumatic situation is on the basis of the person undergoing the traumatic situation. For instance, uh, let's say you know, God forbid, but a person is in the is in a car accident, right? Uh, they they can have three responses to it. One is the person picks up the car to the next day and starts driving again. The second response is that the person may start driving but may not go on the route where the accident happened. The third is that the person completely stops driving and is like, okay, I'm never going to drive because this is just unsafe. I am unsafe in a car or I'm just unsafe, right? Now, in all three, it is how the person has processed that situation which has led to the trauma, right? So, you know, when people talk about trauma, they say, Are, itna sa hua hai, or, you know, such a small event, why, do- why does it need to qualify as a trauma? But we need to understand that it is only on the perspective of how the person has processed that information, which, it leads, to, which leads to trauma, right? So in EMDR, what, is, uh, what, what we basically work with are these inappropriately maladaptively stored memories, which means they've encountered a situation, not known how to deal with it, and it gets locked in the brain. Now, when it gets locked in the brain, it has not gotten processed. It has not gotten filed in the correct cabinet of our brain, right? Which means that, let's say, uh, you know, if I was to ask you, do you remember what your grade one teacher told you? No. No, you won't. Because at that time, whatever your grade one teacher told you, you had the skills to deal with it and it got filed in the correct cabinet in the brain and it is there. Be it good or if bad. Really? Good or bad, Right. But now similarly, if there would have been an experience in grade one where, you know, let's say your teacher would have yelled really loudly. And that still causes a concern today that whenever someone yells, you're like, oh, wow, okay, I don't like this. Then we go back to that memory. That is the maladaptively unprocessed memory that is there in your childhood and that is what EMDR works on. So it works on all these channels. Now that experience happened in grade one. Every time you have a certain similar experience, it keeps getting locked in the brain. It keeps joining to that one little experience. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it starts having reactions. Like let's say, you know, whenever you hear somebody talking loud, you go into a panic attack or, you know, you have an extreme, uh, you know, this thing, or, you know, you may have uh, thoughts of, you know, I can't handle it. Or, you know, you may have, I'm not good enough. That's why this person is yelling. Some sort of inappropriate response. Exactly. So we develop that. And that is what this symptom is. So EMPR actually talks about working through these memories. It talks about working through them and making the thought okay. That okay, it happened, but I'm in control now. It's okay, but I'm okay as I am right now. Right? so that is what emdr does it works on these uh, on these core memories because it believes that when you uh, you know sort of work through those memories you're able to work through the whole channel of thoughts that you may be having right now so in my experience a lot of actually this is my perspective of work that you know whenever you know any child comes in or any adolescent or young adult comes in we do go back into the past to identify when that really started. And when that started may not be the trigger that has come up now. Because I've come to know it, it, there's always something, oh, you know, way back that happened in school, you know. And, uh, you know, I felt very overwhelmed with it. But why do you remember it in such detail now? Is because it was not processed properly earlier. So what we're seeing right now is just a manifestation of that. But when we w- start working on either this uh, you know, memory, which is in the current time or in the past, it actually has an effect in the future where you can deal with it in a much more effective way, the similar situation. So the uh, EMDR therapy works on the past, it works on the present and it works on the future as well. So it works on all of those dynamics and those dimensions together. Nice. So this is what, in a nutshell, it is. It originated out of a lot of work with war veterans who had, you know, um, uh, undergone war and, you know, they had had uh, very, very from that and were continuing to have a lot of symptoms in today's day and age. They were having, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks, all of that. And slowly and steadily, this uh, uh, you know therapeutic modality has spread to, you know, a lot of different uh, disorders in the mental health as well. So this is what EMDR is about. And it's a very, very, very powerful, uh, you know, technique of work because you actually see clients moving from, you know, feeling insanely overwhelmed to you know like be- getting better and better and better and you know, being able to cope with the situation getting a positive uh you know thought into them so you know it just completely turns
0: so uh talking of uh people laymen what sort of patients uh, do you see like war veterans is one very particular set of patients what yes. sort of normal patients would want to go for EMDR?
1: i work with EMDR for all kinds of disorders. I work; it, it works fantastically well with people with anxiety. I have known, known to work with people who have had uh, who are undergoing depression because they have, you know, maybe they have a history of bullying or, you know, let's say other psychosocial factors which may work like, you know, having troubled families, they come from, you know, different relationships, there's trauma there. So, you know, uh, with... Uh, in my experience, I've worked uh, with EMDR with across all disorders. There's uh, there's not a lot that I don't work with it because I can always find that there is something has led. So my whole paradigm of working is that there's something that could have caused this. It may not just be today. So I work in going back into the, you know, adolescence past to understand, you know, what were their experiences? What were their challenges? What were their, you know, victories? What were the accomplishments? I'm interested in all of that, you know, and and that's when I create, uh, you know, a full, uh, let's say, a th- a treatment plan to understand, you know, where this may have started from. Uh, so that is the, you know, the paradigm that I work with, and I've worked with EMDR across a lot of. Uh, A lot, almost all my clients have worked with EMDR, but yes, I do have an eclectic approach wherein I may use techniques of cognitive behavior therapy as well. I may use uh, some techniques of narrative and uh, family therapy. I may also uh, do supportive psychotherapy. So it's a conjunctions and eclectic approach. That I work with for very, very high, uh, you know, uh, crisis clients, you will not, uh, you know, probably uh, work on their traumas. First, you'll work in stabilizing them in the present. So, you know, for them, if if the client is really highly, very suicidal, then you will not work on anything past. You will ask them, but you will not. You will stabilize them in the present first because you're because the the important part is that you work with them today. Right. Their health, their safety, their well-being today is very important. So I would first stabilize that and then I would eventually I would go back to the past, no doubting that. But it just may not be at the beginning, because at the beginning I would want to stabilize the client first. So for me that is my paradigm of work. That's an
0: amazing approach to all sorts of mental disorders. And I'm, I'm finding this EMDR really intriguing. So I'd like a bit more of detail on it. Depending upon what they show in the movies, because you constantly kept on referring to the past memories, past memories. Does it involve hypnosis? It might sound cliche. No. No. no
1: that's, no, that's it's, what not, they. It's, uh, it's actually a great question. No, it's... <laughs> It's not hypnosis because if, uh, I'm not a hypnotherapist to you know properly validate what the you know uh, techniques of that uh, you know therapeutic modality might be. But this surely isn't hypnotherapy. It believes in something which is called dual awareness, Doctor Rahat, which means that it's like one foot in the past, but you know that you're addressing the issues in the present. So basically, what it does is that it takes you back to your past memories. But you know that you're addressing it from today, which means that they use something called bilateral stimulation, which is eye movement. That's why it's called eye movement. Um, Or, you know, they may use like tapping to be able to tell you that you're very much in the present, you're here. But we're trying to address an issue of the past. So like a conscious recall of memories. Absolutely conscious. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it is done under the guided, uh, you know, it's very guided by the therapist. They don't interfere with what memories come up, but they do, uh, they're in the session only. So, you know, it can, uh, it's guided by the person, uh, by the therapist. So, it's not like, you know, you just think back into your past because that can have its other implications. But it's very, very, it's dual awareness, which means you're one foot in the past and one foot in the present. So, therefore, it's not really hypnotherapy. Um, It's very aware past work if I can like, put mm-hmm. it like that. In a snapshot.
0: Yes. I, that was amazing and from what you're talking and the kind of experience and the kind of approach you have for dealing all sorts of mental disorders, I'm floored. I'm completely impressed with you. It was really nice. Thank you so much for having me Dr. Ahad. It was a pleasure. Guys, y'all can uh, find Dr. Tripti on Instagram and Facebook. The links will be mentioned in the show notes below. And Dr. Tripti, thank you so much for this insightful and amazing session. I'm sure it's going to benefit tons of parents out there.
1: I hope it does, right? That's, That's the goal, to create as much awareness so that, you know, kids can get help at the right time. That is always going to be, you know, uh, what I what I work with. So hopefully this will uh, reach home to some people. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Thank you
1: so much, Dr. Rahad, for having me. Thank you so much.
0: It was a pleasure, Dr. Sripati. And guys, that's it from our side. Until then, stay healthy, stay happy. That's it for today. Do subscribe to my podcast so you will be notified each time a new episode is online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn as Dr. Mommy Speaks. Don't forget to like and review our podcast wherever you listen. It will help others to find this podcast. And you can visit our website drmommyspeaks.com forward slash podcast for all our show notes and any resources mentioned by me or my guests. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Until then, happy parenting!